Um, so our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Um, just as you're turning to that, um, if anyone wants a Bible or needs a Bible, there's some at the back. If you don't have one, feel free to take that with you. That's yours to keep. Um, and as we're turning, um, we're reminded um, that this is God's word for us today. It is his gift to the church. Through these scriptures, God reveals himself and his character to us. So let us settle our hearts and consider the truths of this passage for us today. So it's Luke 5, 27 to 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he would tear the new piece, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And, no and no one after drinking old wine desires for new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm just going to pray before um, Elder comes. Father, um, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for what a gift it is to us, Lord. Um, thank you, yeah, that your word is still alive today um, as when it was first written, Lord. And I just pray that as Elder comes, um, it will be your words through him, Lord, that our hearts will be challenged, Lord, um, that our ears will be open to hear what you have to say to us. Um, and yeah, Lord, we just thank you for the privilege that it is to gather here. In your precious name I pray, amen. Thanks, Jackie. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, I didn't introduce myself before, but if you're new or visiting, my name is Andrew. Uh, I'm the pastor here in Village South. Um, oh, it's good to see you. Um, we're just continuing in Luke's gospel. I'm going to say that every week because we're going to be here for uh, a long time. Um, we're, uh, I'm just going to move you a little bit, James, just in case I like flaff my hands and knock this over. Um, uh, yes, we're in this series uh, called The Seeking to Save the Lost in the book of Luke, and we're going to take a break for a couple of weeks over uh, Easter, those two weeks of, those two Sundays of Easter, and we'll look at events around Jesus' death and resurrection, um, and then we'll continue on and look after that again. Um, today we're in, uh, we're going to finish chapter five, um, Jesus is at a party, one of my uh, favorite things that Jesus does is, is go for dinner, because I love going for dinner too. Um, I, I don't go out that much for dinner, if I'm honest. Um, it's kind of a treat, maybe a few times a year, birthday, anniversary, that kind of stuff. Um, but I especially love going out for dinner uh, in places where you get loads of different, like loads of different small portions, right? Now, don't get me wrong, I love a good feed as well. But I love when you're going out for dinner, I want to go somewhere where the chef is going to tell you what to eat. 
Okay, I love that. I love where the chef carefully uh, puts together all these different ingredients and he puts on a plate and you're like, is that all? But then you eat it and you're somehow satisfied. Um, I love it when uh, you, you don't know how they've done it. All you know is something amazing is happening in your mouth. And then if it's that's paired with like a good glass of wine, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. I've been watching, uh, anyone watch Great British Menu? No, just me. Come on, James, my boy. Um, Love that show. Just seeing what they can do with, with food. Like we, the other night making dessert, guys were making clouds that you could eat. It's incredible. Um, but no matter how good the food is, the company is what really makes a meal, isn't it? Like you could have, uh, you could be having beans on toast um, and don't knock beans on toast. Uh, you could have beans on toast, but if you're with people you love, then that's really what makes the meal. Um, there's a few meals in my life that stick out in my memory. Uh, our wedding meal, um, because that was me and Haley uh, round a table with our closest friends in a room full of our friends and family uh, that love us and just celebrating that we just got married. Or I can remember a couple of different uh, meals that me and Haley have had, just the two of us. Or I remember one, one of the best meals of my life uh, was in Belgrade, uh, sitting in this restaurant overlooking the river at sunset with uh, not my wife, with a friend, and, uh, and we had 10 courses. It was incredible, really incredible meal. And the point was, I was with my best friend, and we were having a great time. Um, but the point is that when it comes to meals, who you're with is, is more important than what's on your plate. And this is definitely the case for Jesus. Uh, Jesus loved eating with people. Um, we see him sometimes at great feasts, and other times we see him just cooking some fish over a fire on the beach. For him, having a meal with people is one of the, his main ways of, of getting to know people, talking to people, slowing down, and, and sharing the gospel. Luke's gospel in particular is full of stories of Jesus going for dinner. Um, one author actually says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either at a meal, coming from a meal, or going to a meal, right? Like some people I know as well. Um, I mean, talk about me, like that's me. I'm either eating or going to eat or uh, coming from eating. And there is truth in that. In Luke chapter 7, 34, Jesus tells us about himself. He says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. That may be surprising to us, right? We might think the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's what we've called this series, and that is right. But the son of man has come eating and drinking. Not only speaks to his humanity, but tells us how he goes about doing this. How he goes about uh, seeking and saving the lost. For Jesus, the dinner table is a place of incredible importance. Meals are a chance for him to show and share the kingdom of God. It's an opportunity to teach and be present. For Jesus, meals are ordinary, everyday occurrences with eternal significance. And we forget this, don't we? This is one of the examples we forget to follow of Jesus. But even before we get into this passage, let's think about this. Meals give us an opportunity to reflect on our own neediness, don't they? Because if, on a most basic level, if you don't eat, you'll, you'll die. We're made not to be self-reliant, but we're made to rely on something from outside of ourselves which strengthens us and encourages, or strengthens us and nourishes us. Meals give us an opportunity to reflect on God's goodness to us in providing for us, but, but not just providing uh, food for our bodies, but in an even greater sense, it symbolizes God providing his own son as a sacrifice for our sin. And maybe when we sit down to eat, instead of rushing through grace, 
uh, our, we, we, our kids often give thanks with food in our house, and when Abigail does it, it's usually like two lines. You know, it's a quick, like, thank you for this. Sometimes she even forgets to say thank you for the food. She just wants to get eaten. But maybe instead of doing that, maybe we need to pause for a second and reflect on these things and, and thank God for his goodness to us. I mean, think about this. God gives us three chances a day to stop and just reflect on his goodness to us. And, and put some eternal significance into our food that Jesus saw in his meals. And that's what we see Jesus doing today. We come to this first meal that Jesus uh, had. Well, not the first meal he has. Presumably he's had a lot in the 30 years he's been alive before him. But the first one that's recorded for us in Luke's gospel. And as usual, with Jesus, this meal brings about some discussion. And here we see two things being discussed. Firstly, we see Jesus and feasting. And then we see Jesus and fasting. The first part is about who you eat with or who Jesus is eating with. And then the second part is about why he eats at all. Why are you eating at all? And both discussions happen at the same meal. And both are controversial for the people who are watching. And what, and what I think we see in this passage and what I want us to take away from today is that Jesus goes to sinners and so should we because he has brought about a new way in us. Jesus goes to sinners. He eats with them and so should we. Because he has brought about a new way in us. So let's start with this first part, Jesus and feasting. That he goes to sinners, he eats with sinners. Um, our story starts with Jesus calling Levi, the tax collector, to be his disciple. Now, I don't think there's ever been any culture or time in the world when tax collectors have been liked or appreciated. Like, who here likes paying tax? Nobody. I hate getting your paycheck and you're like... Are you serious? Like, look how much money you've taken off me. Nobody likes paying tax. But even in the realm of tax collectors, I think in first century Judea, they were up there with the worst. In order to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus does by not only allowing a tax collector to be his disciple, but by then going to a party that's full of tax collectors, in order to grasp the magnitude of what's happening there, we have to understand two things about tax collectors in this culture. Firstly, we need to understand that they are the most hated people in society. And secondly, we need to understand that they are hated for good reason, okay? People hate them because they're bad people. It's not a prejudice based on some of their religion or race or gender. These guys are despised because they are bad dudes. They're racketeers. They're crooks, right? They're, they're kind of like the Peaky Blinders of the day, okay? They, they do whatever they want just so they can make more money for themselves, Tax collectors were, were Jews, um, but they didn't just work for the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. On top of this, they used their position as tax collectors to, to make themselves rich. I was trying to think of, of an, a modern equivalent and to, to, to just grasp how much disdain there, were for, there was for these people. It, it might be kind of like Ukrainians working for the Russians, taking money off the Ukrainian people, to pay for the invasion of their own country. That might be a similar kind of comparison. It has that sense to it. So each district in the Roman Empire had a certain tax figure uh, assigned to it, uh, and, and that had to be paid to the Roman Empire every year. Um, but what would happen would be that the, the tax collectors would just collect as much money as they could, then pay that figure to the Roman Empire, and then just keep the rest to themselves, right? And so they became extremely wealthy through extorting money out of people, right? It was awful. It was essentially just legalized crime, legalized extortion. 
They taxed people for everything. They had in, income tax, sales tax, import tax, export tax. Like we're all familiar with those things, right? But they had other things. Um, for example, there was a cart tax where you would get taxed on the number of wheels you had in your cart, right? I don't know, maybe someone invented a three-wheel cart just to save money, I don't know. But um, they would stop people on the road, for example. There's records of them just making somebody unpack their whatever they were carrying. And then they would just decide, oh, you've got this, well, I'm going to tax you this much based on what they were carrying. It was awful. And on top of this, they had thugs that intimidated you into paying for uh, whatever they asked you to pay. So you couldn't just refuse to pay. Otherwise, bad things might happen to you. They were kind of like the mafia in that sense. Tax collectors were the most hated people in Hebrew society. They were despised and they were not nice people. And it's one of these guys that Jesus calls to follow him. Jesus says, follow me. Of all the people in Galilee, Levi was the most unacceptable candidate for discipleship. You, you, you just wouldn't expect him to, that guy, to be a disciple of Jesus. This guy is a, a thug, he's a bully, and he's a traitor to his own people. The other disciples Jesus has at this point are, do you remember when we looked at uh, uh, Simon Peter? They're fishermen. He's got Peter, James, and John, fishermen. And, and I can't, can't imagine their reaction when, when Jesus stops with Levi. Of course, they won't have to pay him tax if they want to travel down this road. But, but then Jesus says, hey, hey, Levi, come and follow me. Come and join these guys. Because fishing was the main industry of that region. And, and so Peter, James, and John would have been hit the hardest by this kind of industry that Levi was in. Maybe they even knew Levi. Maybe they had had some run-ins with him before. But they definitely hated him, whether they knew him or not. And Jesus brings them together to follow him. You see, Jesus sought out the person everyone else wanted to hate. And instead of hating him, Jesus saves him. This incredible picture of redemption. This is what Jesus does, isn't it? He loves the unlovable. He saves the unsavable. He seeks out the worst people and brings them to himself. Jesus can save anybody. This is incredible news. Jesus calls Levi. Levi follows him. And then Jesus completely transforms his life. Now, this tax collector, Levi, would come to be known as Matthew. The same Matthew who was not just a disciple of Jesus, but the same Matthew who went on to write Matthew's gospel. And I love this. I love the transformation. Levi was a crook and a thug and a bully and the worst kind of person you can imagine, right? And then he goes on to become Matthew. This name that, similar to the way Jesus gives Simon the name Peter, the rock. Oh, I just thought of that. He's the rock, the original rock. Um, Dwayne Johnson is not the original rock. Um, just in that same way, Matthew becomes this name that, that Levi is known for. And Matthew means gift of God. So the person who had been stealing from his own people, through the power of Jesus at work in his life, becomes a gift to the people. Isn't that incredible? This is what the transformation that Jesus brings about in his life. Jesus can take your life, no matter your background, no matter uh, who you are or what you've done, and he can make you into something beautiful. I think we should be so encouraged for that. And the first, thing, the, the, the first thing that Levi does after deciding to leave his life of extortion and crime um, and follow Jesus is not to kind of disown all his friends. He throws a party for them, right? He doesn't run away from them and, and start to only hang out in church, okay? 
brings all his friends together because he wants them to meet Jesus too. Guys, you know how everybody hates us and, and you know how they're totally right to hate us uh, because we've done some really bad stuff? Because bad people know they're bad, right? You know, it's not like criminals are like, well, actually, I think like stand on that guy's head's okay. You know, like criminals know they're bad. He says, well, well, well let me introduce you to the one who, who doesn't hate us. This guy says that even people like us can be part of the kingdom of God. Nobody else has said this. Everyone else says we can't be part of the kingdom of God. This guy says we can be part of the kingdom of God. And so he throws a party. It's a great feast, Luke tells us. Levi's a wealthy guy, right? This is the kind of party you'd want to go to. No expense spared. Um, he's got extra servants in. He's got the chefs in. Um, there's waiters going around carrying trays of drinks. Um, uh, there's so much of the, the most incredible food that you can imagine. It's not just a kind of, hey, come on over dinner kind of meal. It's a banquet, right? Levi has pulled out all the stops. And it's full of tax collectors. It's essentially like a mafia get-together. Uh, probably because Levi didn't have any other friends who, who, who would come to his party. Everyone else both hates him and is scared of him. So he invites the only friends he has, other tax collectors, people who have got rich in the same way. And Jesus comes to this feast to hang out with the worst kind of people. And listen to what happens in verses 29 to 32. He says, Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. So they don't even go to Jesus. They go to the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus doesn't just call in to show his face at a party. You ever, you ever done that? I'm not saying, okay, I am guilty of doing this sometimes. You're like, I don't really want to go, but I feel like I'll just stick my head in for half an hour and show my face and then, and then leave again. Jesus doesn't do this. Luke tells us that he's reclining at the table with them, right? Uh, the table was low to the ground. If there even was a table, it might have just been food on rugs in the ground. And, and you, you kind of lay on your left elbow and then eat with your right hand. And you're really close to the person in front of you and behind you. And you kind of talk like this and this. Uh, there was an intimacy to eating in this way. You were close together with the other guests. If you, if you lean back, you're literally leaning on the chest of the person behind you. And so in those days, way more than it is today, to have a meal with someone was to, was to cross a boundary into closeness and friendship. To share a meal in this way was to be somehow joined with the people you're eating with. It was a way of saying you are accepted by them and you accept them. Jesus makes a statement by choosing to eat with these people. And the Pharisees can't handle this. You see, the Pharisees didn't associate with sinful people. Well, they didn't associate with people who were outwardly sinful anyway. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated one. They had kind of uh, created this way of life that was separate from anything that looked a bit dodgy. Um, they took the Old Testament laws about purity and cleanliness, laws which, by the way, were meant to emphasize how holy and pure God is, and they twisted these laws so that if you wanted to be godly, you could never associate with any sinful people. For them to eat with unclean people meant that you were sharing and their uncleanness, right? To eat with sinners was to share in their sinfulness. 
And so they asked the disciples, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, right? These people are the scum of the earth. Do you know how bad they are? Do you know how, they, uh, how the opposite of holy they are? How can a so-called holy person eat with such unholy people? And this makes me wonder, could people say this about us? Why do you hang out with sinners? Because people can only ask that if we actually are hanging out with sinners. I wonder, are we known like Jesus was for being a friend of sinners? We'll see that in Luke chapter 7. He was a friend of sinners. Is this really, is this a feature of our lives, right? Who are your non-Christian friends, for example? It's so easy for us in, in Northern Ireland to live in a wee Christian bubble. Who are our non-Christian friends? Who do we choose to spend time with? Who are we hanging out with and inviting into our home? Following Jesus and learning from him means that there is a call on our lives to spend time with people who need him. Otherwise, how are they going to hear about him? So often, Christians spend so much time and effort thinking about, thinking about how to become more like Jesus that we forget that a big part of becoming more like Jesus is spending time with people who don't know him. And I'm not talking about being unintentionally associated with non-Christians at work, right? Because you, you have to go to your job. <laughs> Jesus is intentional about going to eat and spend time with these kinds of people. And so he, he is calling us to do the same. Spending time over food and drink with people who have worldviews that are different to ours. In conversation that sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable. Where we... Where, where things and worldviews are that we find totally unacceptable are just the norm. I was chatting with a friend recently, and, and he had been hanging out with some people he hadn't seen really since before the pandemic. And, and he was like, I forgot like, how different like, non-Christians are to me. You know? And they're talking about things that are just normal. And he's like, oh, wow, I'd forgotten. But that's exactly what we're meant to do. Listen, if, if you're serious about following Jesus, you probably won't spend most of your time with Christian people doing Christian things. If we are serious about living out the missional lifestyle of Jesus, we will be intentional about eating and drinking with people who don't know him. Let me say that again. If we are serious about living out the missional lifestyle of Jesus, we will be intentional about eating and drinking with people who don't know him. We're finally coming out of the pandemic, a time when hospitality is possible again. And we need to think what this means for us. And, and by the way, sometimes we confuse hospitality and fellowship because they're not the same thing. Fellowship is when we as a church, brothers and sisters, uh, spend time together, right? Maybe that is sharing a meal. But hospitality is about welcoming strangers. The word hospitality literally means stranger friendship or care of strangers. This is what we're called to, to eat and drink with people who don't know Jesus so we can introduce them to him. So I guess the encouragement or the challenge, whatever way you want to think about it, is to get let's get out of our comfort zones. Let's invite our friends and colleagues over for dinner. Let's go for a drink with non-believers. Let's do this and talk openly about Jesus. Just as Jesus did here with the tax collectors, and then call them to repentance just as Jesus did. Like can we think about what it would look like for all of us to be mobilized in this way, 
to, to be a room full of people that go and invite strangers, invite non-Christians into our homes. What would God, what, what change would God bring into people's lives if we followed him in this way? Just imagine the possibility. So maybe this week, when you're with your missional community, maybe you can talk about how to do this. What does it look like for you to open your home and lay the table? How can you and, and the people you live with, or you yourself if you live on your own, how can, how can you show hospitality in this way? How can we make more opportunities to welcome strangers, people outside the church, and introduce them to Jesus? Just say, like Levi, like Matthew, saying, guys, you need to meet this guy because he has something amazing to offer. Can we do the same? Now, maybe this makes you uncomfortable. Maybe you think that I'm suggesting that we should just go and spend time with non-Christians and, and just do whatever they're doing, behave the, the way they're behaving. And I'm not saying that, and neither is Jesus. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, it's totally possible to be separate from sin while not being separate from sinners, right? The Pharisees thought that by associating with sinners, Jesus would become unclean. But instead, Jesus enters their environment and spends time with them and calls them to repentance. And this is the example we are to follow. We can be, you've probably heard this phrase before, in the world, but not of the world. The Pharisees thought that associating with sinners would separate them from God, but Jesus is actually showing us that a lack of concern for sinners separates us from God. It's kind of the opposite, isn't it? If we're not concerned about people that don't know Jesus, it's actually separating us from God. And Jesus gives them a parable to explain why he is at this feast. He says, a well person, a healthy person doesn't need a doctor. I think about it. Um, you only go to see a doctor when you're sick. Doctors don't usually go around door to door checking on healthy people and saying, oh, you're healthy, you're healthy, great. No, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? You go to a doctor when you feel sick. So Jesus is saying, I am with these sinners because they are sick and I am the only doctor that can heal them. He says, I've not come to call the righteous. He, by this, he means the self-righteous, those who, who think they're already righteous. Because they wouldn't come anyway, and they think they don't need me. I have come to call sinners to repentance. You see, the tax collectors knew they were bad guys, right? They knew exactly how bad they were. They didn't need anyone to, to tell them that there was something wrong in their lives. And this is why Jesus goes to them. And he shows them love and grace and, 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 and doesn't join them in their sin, but calls them out of it, calls them to repentance. And here's what I love about this. Because Jesus gives us this example of going to sinners, but he's not just our example. He's our redeemer. What he calls us to do, he has done for us. Because Jesus came to us in our sin. We're just like the tax collectors. This is how any of us become Christians. We realize our need of salvation, we repent of that, and we trust that Jesus is the only one who can save us. And that's it. That's all that any of us have. And because Jesus has done this for us, we then do that for others. We go because he came to us. We're saved because Jesus came into our house and met with us when we were unlovable. 
And he called us to repentance. Jesus goes to sinners and so should we. And so that's Jesus in feasting. Let's look at the second part of this, Jesus in fasting. Jesus is bringing this new way into our lives. Um, it turns out the Pharisees aren't done with their questions. They have another bone to pick. Um, and this time it's to do with Jesus' disciples' lack of fasting. You see, everything about the Pharisees' religion is about outward holiness, right? Doing the right things and being seen to do the right things. Having the appearance of righteousness. If they were knocking about in Northern Ireland, they'd be called good living, right? That's essentially what they were. They were particularly fond of doing religious things that made you a bit miserable so that you could be seen to be being miserable so that people would think you're extra holy. Because miserable people are extra holy, right? And fasting was one of those things that they did. And they did this a lot. In the Old Testament, there's only ever one command to fast. The, the people of God were only commanded to fast on one day. And that was the Day of Atonement. That's the day when sacrifices were offered to pay for the sins. But apart from that day, fasting was a voluntary thing. And so the people did it rightly in times of mourning or in, in times of prayer for the situation. So you might remember when we looked at the book of Esther, they, they pray and fast because the king has ordered that all the Israelites would be slaughtered. And so they have 10 days of, of praying and fasting and mourning and, and, and asking God to help their situation. But the Pharisees took it to a whole new level. They fasted twice a week. And when they fasted, they wore like their worst clothes, they didn't do their hair, they didn't wash, they made themselves look a bit, you know, gaunt and all that kind of stuff, just so people would see how miserable they are and realize, oh, they're fasting, they must be really holy. And on top of that, they, they believed that fasting like this would make them more right with God. Now, fasting is a good thing when we do it in the right way and with the right heart. And we know this because in other places, Jesus actually teaches on fasting. But like all legalism, the Pharisees have taken something good that we get to do and turned it into something we have to do to make us good. <laughs> you see how that works? This is what legalism does. It's, it takes something good that we get to do and it turns it into something that we have to do to make us good. God says, you may do this, and legalism says, you have to do this. And the problem was that they had made their faith all about outward appearance, the outward appearance of goodness, not what was actually going on in their hearts. They were only concerned about being uh, associated with the, the wrong people, not being seen to fast and to pray. If you, if you weren't seen to be doing your, your, your prayers and your fasting, there was something wrong. And before we start judging the Pharisees, we need to realize that this is all too easy for us, isn't it? It's easy for us to slip into this mindset easy for us to turn our Christianity into something that is preoccupied with how holy we appear to be. All of us can easily turn up to a gathering on a Sunday, sing the songs, pray the prayers, ask people how they're doing, yep, good to see you, and just keep hidden all the ways we betrayed Jesus this week at work. We can easily come to our missional community like family dinner get together and say something encouraging, maybe even insightful rather than being real about our struggles and our sins. We can serve our church family publicly, but keep hidden what we look at on our phone screens when nobody else is around. Listen, we can even stand up on a platform and preach the Bible and believe that somehow this makes us a good Christian. It's all, so, it's all too easy to turn our Christianity 
into something that is purely an outward concern. But Jesus, like he did so often, uses parables to address what is going on. And he uses these examples about a wedding feast, patching up old clothes and wineskins, making the point that he has come to bring an old way, an old way, or bring a new way, a new way that isn't uh, concerned about the outward appearance, but is concerned with your heart. The new way that Jesus is bringing is more concerned about what is going on in your heart than the religious activities you engage engage in. And first he talks about a wedding. Listen to what he says in verses 34 and 35. Um, My eyesight's getting so bad, I must be getting old. (laughs) Um, Soon I'll have a big giant print Bible. Um, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, and then they will fast in those days. Now, can you imagine going to a wedding and having no food, like a wedding that didn't serve food? Um... I am not at all in favor of really big, expensive weddings, but I am in favor of weddings being a party and a celebration and a feast, okay? Uh, weddings are a time for celebration. Uh, my mom, a few years ago, uh, went to a wedding, and the couple were really into their health and fitness, and the wedding meal was like healthy food uh, and smoothies, right? And that's not what I want at a wedding. I want like steak and wine, you know, all that kind of stuff. I want it to be a feast and a party. Uh, that sounds miserable to me. Fasting is a good thing, but you don't fast at a wedding, right? A wedding is a time for joyful celebration. And Jesus is saying, listen, first of all, you couldn't accept that a doctor would go to sick people, and now you can't accept that wedding guests would feast at a wedding. Jesus is announcing that the time of God being joined in a union with his people with an unbreakable vow has come, and that is cause for celebration. Jesus is the groom, and he has come to marry his bride, the church. And so why wouldn't his disciples be feasting? The time will come, Jesus says, when the disciples will fast, when he is taken away from them. When Jesus is gone, then there will be plenty of time and opportunity to fast. And so what time are we in? Are we, the church, in the time of fasting? Are we in the time of feasting? And the answer for us, the church, is that that we're in both. We're in both. I mean, this is a time of great joy for us. Christ is with us, okay? Christians should be joyful people. This should be a celebration every week when we come together into this place to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. This should be a celebration. Martin Luther said, a Christian should should and must be a cheerful person. If they aren't, the devil is tempting them. (laughs) And I love that because we think often it's the other way around, don't we? If we're too joyful, we're up to something. (laughs) Nah, we should be the most cheerful people in the world. Jesus has come to us We are his bride. God has saved us from his wrath. All our sins have been forgiven. We have been brought from death to life. We have been given eternal life. We will never die. Our future is secure. We have the ultimate hope of a future without sin and without guilt and without shame. A future when death and pain and disease and war and extortion will be no more. We have been united with Christ. We are one with Christ. And on top top of all that, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we're brought into this family called the church. We are righteous in the eyes of God. We are united with Christ. And the Holy Spirit now lives in us so we can be sure of an eternal future. So you tell me, 
why would we not be the most joyful people in the world? Why is it that Christians so often go around with big long faces on them? We should be the most joyful people in the world because of who God is and he has come to us. But on the other hand, our joy has not been yet made full because our bridegroom, bridegroom isn't yet fully with us, right? So we fast, yes. And when we fast, we do it not for outward appearances, but we fast focusing on Christ. Uh, lots of us are fasting something or other over Lent. And we do, this, uh, uh, we do this not for outward appearance, but we do it to remind ourselves of our need of Jesus, our longing for Him. Sometimes we fast uh, and pray in a, it, for our immediate situation, a particular need we have, or mourning over a particular situation. But ultimately, fasting is about saying, come Lord Jesus and make the world right. Ultimately, that's what we do when we fast. We're longing for Jesus. And one day, one day, we will be with Jesus face to face. And you know what we'll do then? Then we'll feast. And we'll feast forever. The second illustration Jesus, well, there's the second two illustrations Jesus gives are about patching up old clothes and, and wineskins. And they're both making the same point. Let me just recap uh, what he says in verses 36 to 38. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will be burst and the skins will be spilled, and the, and the skins, but, sorry, if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Both these parables are about trying to impose something new, something new onto something old. Jesus is saying, you would be crazy to try and patch up a hole in an old jumper by buying a brand new jumper and cutting a piece of material out of it and sticking it on the, on the old jumper. Like that, that just doesn't make sense. Why on earth would you do that? You end up destroying the old one and the new one. You've got two ruined things. Same with the wineskins. Wine in those days wasn't kept in bottles. It was, it was kept in containers made out of goat skin. Now, in an old wineskin, the leather has dried out and become a bit further, firmer and less pliable. So what you want to do with new wine is put it into a new wineskin, which is still flexible, so that as the wine continues to ferment, that the wineskin is flexible enough to be able to expand with the gases that are coming from the fermentation. And if you put new wine into an old wineskin, the leather can't expand and so it ends up bursting and the wine goes everywhere and guess what? You've also got a ruined wineskin. What is Jesus talking about in these things? Well, he's saying to the Pharisees, you can't just take the kingdom of God and put your traditions into it. It won't fit. It won't fit. And the lesson for us is you can't have Christ, Christ and expect to squeeze him into your old life. When you receive Jesus, your life has to change. You need a new system. You can't just go on living the same way you have been. When you receive, when someone becomes a Christian, sorry, their life changes, right? Um, they stop doing certain things and they start doing certain other things. 
And as they grow in Jesus, Jesus grows in them, and so their life changes more and more. Uh, like, I am thankfully not the same person now as I was when I first became a Christian. And, and by God's grace, I hope and pray that I continue to grow and change until he comes again and I'm made fully like him. Just like a wineskin expands as the wine ferments. But if we try to just have a wee bit of Jesus, just enough to patch up the holes in our lives, we haven't really gained anything at all, have we? In fact, in the end, we'll end up losing both our old life and Jesus. Jesus, Jesus says this is just like people, in verse 39, like, who, who, who don't even want to try the new wine. They want to hold on to the old wine. I can be actually a bit guilty of that sometimes. I like familiar things. I'll just, have the, I'll just try the same thing because I know it's good. Jesus is saying, if, that's, if we don't even want to drink the, 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 try the new wine, we end up losing both the old one and the new one. Look, I'll, I'll come to church, sure. I'll be part of an MC maybe even. But I'm not really prepared to let Jesus fill my life. And Jesus says, if you try that, one day you're going to lose both. Because you haven't really accepted Jesus and your old life will be gone. But when we give ourselves to Jesus fully, when we become like Levi and leave everything to follow him, it's like putting new wine into a new wineskin. Our lives will change and continue to change gradually and never burst. We'll become more full of Jesus and have more and greater experience of him until one day we have him in all his fullness. And so maybe we can ask ourselves, has there been change in my life? In what ways have I grown in Jesus? That's grown, G-R-O-W-N, not G-R-O-A-N. <laughs> I say it in the same way. In what ways have we grown in Jesus in the last year, in the last five years even? As, as Christ expands in me, am I seeing the world more and more in the way that he sees it? Are there changes in how I think and behave? We can't squeeze Jesus into our old molds. He has come to bring new wine. He is the new wine, a new age, and make us a new creation. He's not calling us to contain our religion to a building on a Sunday morning for an hour or two. He's calling us to follow him into a life of real joy, a life of real joy that, that we then take to other people, that we, sh we, we share what we have received with them. And here's what I want to finish with this morning. Um, as, just as, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. It, it's a wonderful thing to be a guest at a wedding. I love going to a wedding. And actually, being a pastor is great now because I get to like, actually perform a lot of marriage ceremonies. It's, it's amazing. It's one of my favorite things ever. I always end up crying just as much as the bride and groom. Um, I love getting dressed up. I love that everybody's there in a good mood. Everyone's there to celebrate uh, the food and the dancing and just the joy of it all. But no wedding I have ever been to can compare to my own wedding. Not that it was a better wedding per se, but just because it was my wedding. And you see, if you are a Christian, you're not just a guest at the wedding. You're the groom. You're the bride and Jesus is the groom. We are not just guests at the wedding. We are the bride. We share the seat of honor at the top table with our groom, with Jesus. 
And how has Jesus instructed us to remember and proclaim his sacrifice, the thing that made us his bride in the first place? No, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, well, say a prayer or sing a song or recite some words. He gives us a meal, right? He, he, he sets the table for us. Jesus invites us to his table where he both serves the food and is the food. He invites us to his table and he nourishes us with himself. This incredible thing, this incredible mystery that Jesus does. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us, providing not just physical nourishment, but providing for our deepest need when he paid the price for our sin and brought us into his family so that we could forever have a seat at his banqueting table. Me and Rachel didn't coordinate what we were going to say this morning, but she started off this morning by calling us to worship, thinking about this banqueting table that we get to feast with Jesus. And this table that we come to each week as Christians, it's just a shadow. It's just a a little foretaste of the real feast that is to come. What are we going to do when we see Jesus face to face in glory? We're going to feast. It's going to be a wedding, actually. The Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to a wedding reception. The time of fasting will be over. And the communion meal is an anticipation of that greater meal to come. Jesus invites us to come and get a glimpse of that now. And just as Jesus has laid the table for us, and just as he has come eating and drinking with sinners, so the call on us is to do the same. So that's my prayer for us this week. Jesus goes to sinners, and so should we, because he has brought about a new way in us. That new way is not outward religion. It's about being full of joy and taking that to other people. Come, Holy Spirit, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made us the bride of your son, Jesus. That, I mean, what a place of honor for people who didn't deserve it. Um, Father, I pray that maybe, maybe when we fail, or for those of us who want to stay on the edge of that, who want to just have enough, enough Christianity to patch up the holes, or trying to put you into our old wineskins, Lord, that you would really, really make us see how much better it is to have you fully, to let you transform us into a new wineskin, to let us, uh, to, when we let you take over our lives, Father, let us see that, that you have not just made us a guest at your wedding, but you have made us your bride at your wedding. Lord Jesus, we know that you come to meet with us at this table, and I pray that each of us would meet with you in a special way. And for anyone who doesn't know you yet, Lord, I pray that, that today, that that invitation to be not just a wedding guest, but to be at your wedding, I pray that they would accept that invitation today. We love you, Lord, and we're so thankful for you. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impact this and, and cause change in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you're a, a follower,